Listen to this. I can't believe you're finally leaving. I never thought this day would come. Dad? You, you better get going, son, or you'll miss your flight. And we wouldn't want that. Okay, I love you guys. Bye. Bye. And now the same thing in sunshine yellow. Can't believe you're finally leaving. <laughs> I never thought this day would come. Dad? Uh, you'd better get going, son, or you'll miss your flight. <laughs> and we wouldn't want that. Okay, love you guys. Bye. Bye. If a colour can make something sound happy, imagine how it could make it look. Metal Paints, the right colour matters. Visit metalpaints.coza. More music, more inspiration. Vua Online. Where are you? Are you in bed? Or are you leaving the first human footprint on Mars? Are you jogging? Or are you about to pull off the heist of the century? Are you in your car? Or are you praying those red eyes in the darkness can't see you? A voice in your ear can take you anywhere. Audible. Get your first audiobook for free and feel every word. Seven ninety nine a month after 30-day trial. Starts automatically. Terms apply. Vuga. It's time to wake up with Vuga Online Radio. really well. If you are listening to me from the Southern Hemisphere, I know that you are very hot at the moment. And certainly if you are in the Northern Hemisphere, your temperatures are starting to drop. I know a friend of mine who lives in uh, London or in England said that she was getting the, the fire on. So thank goodness we don't have that. But <laughs> yes, as you know, Healthcare Hour is all about healthcare professionals. It's us making sure that as healthcare professionals, we remember self-care. We remember that we're not superhuman. We're not, we're actually actual people. Yes. And so we get tired. We get hungry. Um, we get sad. And so it's about how do we prioritize that self-care in order to make sure that we're able to continue to give. It's also about improving the relationship between healthcare professionals and their patients, healthcare professionals, and the families. And just so that we have a better understanding of each other, and also for patients to understand that they have autonomy, they have jurisdiction over their bodies, and that they can make informed decisions about what's happening in their health. It's not just blindly following, oh, you should do this or you should do that. So that is a combination of all the things as you know, I'm a coach and a mentor, and I work with professional clients on the other side of their title, especially healthcare professionals. My guest today is also a colleague. She is an integral coach, and she's a mom. So she's going to be talking to us about her story, and after the break, we will meet Gabby Lowe. Let's go and listen to our messages from our sponsors and we'll be meeting Gabby after the break. Join Discovery Bank to experience the most innovative digital banking products and features at your fingertips. Open your account in minutes and transact immediately with your free virtual card. Get more from your money, pay less interest on your credit and earn more on your savings. Enjoy smart ways to pay medical expenses and get flexible gym visits with Vitality Pay as you gym through Discovery Pay. Track your spend with our smart budgeting tools for a real-time view of your finances. Get all this and more. The future of banking. 
now. More music, more inspiration. Vuga online. Hi there and welcome to Healthcare Hour with Colleen Quist. My guest today is Gabby Lowe. Gabby is a mom. Gabby is an integral coach, so she's a professional coach just like me. And she's coming to share her story with us. I first came across Gabby on the documentary that I saw on our TV screens down in South Africa. And it was Get Me to 21, which is a story about her daughter, Jenna. But Gabby, hello, welcome. I'm going to let you tell your story. Hi, Colleen. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Wow. Okay. Um, Sure. So life was normal uh, for many, many years, whatever that is. (laughs) And As normal uh, as possible. As normal as possible. And then, yeah. I had my my two beautiful daughters. Jen was born in 94 and Christy in 97. Christy, weirdly enough, when she was born, was born with a very rare condition called mastocytosis, which showed up as a skin condition, but is in fact an autoimmune condition. And that really was the first time I was thrown into some sort of uncertainty and my first brush, I suppose, with rare disease. That illness, you either... With the onset of puberty, you either grow out of it or you take it into adulthood as mast cell disease and mast cell leukemia. So that really was, you know, quite a lot of uncertainty that we were living with. Luckily, when Christy hit 13, 14, it became very clear she was on the good side of the illness. At exactly the same time, my um, my niece, Natalie, who was 10 at the time, uh, we were away on our family holiday and Jen was then 16, my oldest daughter. Christy was 13. Natalie was 10 and Natalie showed, was showing signs of breathlessness. Very odd. Um, my sister-in-law Shirley rushed her off to hospital. She was battling to breathe. They opened her up. They took a scan, saw a tumor, opened her up very fast, closed her up. And it turned out she had an extremely rare form of cancer called Chordoma. So that was our next hectic rush with disease, rare disease. Um, Natalie required a, a, a massive surgery um, that was not available in South Africa and expertise were not available in South Africa. And so our family was thrown into complete disarray. Um, Shirley and Stuart, my husband, found the expertise. They found a team that was willing to take this on in the States, in Boston. And I put half my practice. Then I was still in uh, marketing consultancy. I wasn't coaching yet on hold to try and help raise the funds for that. But at exactly the same time, my oldest daughter, Jen, also started showing signs of breathlessness. Very odd. Um, Yeah, that was the start of a very long journey to try and get a diagnosis. So whilst Natalie was overseas having this massive surgery, having seven vertebrae of her spine resected and the tumor resected, Jen, who was then 16 and in grade 10, started to become more and more breathless. And we had no idea what was going on. We started going to doctors. There were echocardiograms, chest x-rays, lung x-rays, blood tests, uh, lung function tests, ECGs, you name it. And nobody could tell us what was wrong. Um, Eventually, after about six months, she was misdiagnosed with brittle asthma. And she went off to exchange in Australia because she had been picked as an exchange student. And we thought, well, okay, we've got a diagnosis. We've got asthma meds. She'll be all right. 
But that was not the case. She got worse and worse. And by the time she came back to South Africa, she couldn't walk, you know, the length of a flat passage without being properly breathless. Long story short, um, eventually she had a ventilation perfusion scan. It looked like hundreds of blood clots in the lungs, but that too was a misdiagnosis. That was the start of her grade 11 year, the start of her in and out of hospital. Um, Months after that, a catheterized angiogram, which is the gold standard test really, confirmed a diagnosis of pulmonary arterial hypertension. And at first, the, 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 the depth and breadth and seriousness of it, to be honest, didn't land. It was like pulmonary arterial hypertension. What, what, what is that? As it turns out, it's an extremely rare lung condition for which there is no cure. Um, she was 17 at the time and it really knocked us sideways. It came as a complete shock. This healthy, fit dancer, athlete, swimmer, top of her grade, young girl, um, was really battling to breathe. And yeah, so the symptoms are breathlessness, severe breathlessness, chest pain, syncope or fainting. Uh, sort of a bluish tinge on the lips. And uh, uh, what what happens in, in layman's terms is that the veins and arteries in the lungs shut down and the patient can't actually absorb oxygen. So her lung function was brilliant because she was panting. She would, she would be able to take in the air, which is the opposite of asthma, really, really well, but not absorb the oxygen from the bloodstream into the veins and arteries, which then leads to a massive impact on the right heart chamber because it's overworking. And yeah, it's a very, very scary, progressive disease. To be honest, when it first landed, um, I just couldn't get my head around it. But I fast realized I was going to have to because there was not a lot of expertise in South Africa, and it's a very little-known disease. It wasn't yet listed with medical health insurances as an illness, so we've had to fight to get it listed as a rare disease with medical health insurers. None of the treatments that she needed were available in South Africa. One entry-level drug was available and otherwise nothing. Um, So, yeah, building the right team, finding the expertise, bringing it in from across the world, Fighting then with Medical Control Council, now known as SAPRA, to get Section 21A approval to get these drugs into the country. It was not only an emotionally extremely difficult journey, but a logistically massive, massive um, challenge. So we, we, we took on the challenge. Um, I educated myself with a medical dictionary and lots of journals to read and um, and really took it on. And we started to build a community and other pulmonary hypertension patients crept out the woodwork. Jen was, as I said, uh, in grade 11. She fast went on to full-time oxygen. Then she went on to a mobility scooter. She... Um, was still top of her grade. And she was an extraordinary young woman because she would not give up on life. And when I say give up on life, I'm not talking about fighting for survival. I'm talking about engaging, 
being really present in life in the most extraordinary way. And that courage is is literally what shaped the way our family dealt with it. She was so open, open-hearted, open-minded, positive, and not I'm not talking about toxic positivity. She was very realistic, but but positive. She always had a positive bias and she would focus on what she had, not the one she didn't have. So every month there were more losses in terms of what she could no longer do. <clears throat> and the 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 stats will tell you, you know, with with category one palmy hypertension, which is what she had, and there are lots of different categories. It's a very complex disease. Um, but she had category one. She was well, no, that's not true. Um, she was category three by the time she was diagnosed. But um palmary arterial hypertension, they don't know what causes it. They have no idea. You can get secondary palmary hypertension as a result of another illness or a hole in the heart or diabetes or all sorts of other things. And then that is a much uh, longer lifespan. But palmary arterial hypertension itself as a disease, they have no idea what causes it. And all the literature says one to three years. I mean, it just was hectic when that landed, you know. Um, so, yeah, the fight to get the meds into the country was huge. Um, and then she got worse and worse regardless of that. And then I knew I had to get her onto something called Flolan. It was, it's an IV epiprostinol. So you, you know, you have to put it into the veins directly. Um, <clears throat> not available here, very expensive. So that was a battle to get the drug from the UK, the expertise to help us to titrate it, mix it. It's a 45 step sterile process. Um, in fact, I used to mix it in the room that I'm sitting in right now with a, a turns this room into a hospital room. Um, and the cartridges, the lines, the pumps, that all came from Australia. So it really was quite a logistical, um, sort of challenge to, to, to make it all happen. We did. And Jen, yeah, we got her onto the drug, but she got worse regardless. She wrote her matric on a massive oxygen machine, which she was by then eight liters of oxygen a minute. And she was still one of the top 30 students in the Western Cape. Um, yeah, she just didn't give up on, on wanting to live, wanting to engage in life. Um, it, she was quite extraordinary in that way. We did get her onto the IV epiprostinol at exactly that time. And at the time that she was writing the trick, we unfortunately, and it was very, very sad, we lost Natalie, my niece, because her tumors receded. And that was really quite something for the girls to witness. Christy was really young still at the time. She was three years younger than Jen. So, yeah, for them to be with, sit with their cousin whilst she was facing her own mortality was quite something. Yeah, what the family has witnessed and gone through together. Um, and then when Jen left school, um, she started at, at UCT on campus, but that was a very lonely time of her life. It was really hard. It's hard to be on campus as a disabled person. Um, yeah, there are roots and there is a whole department to help, but it's a lonely experience when there are 40,000 students 
who are all very able-bodied and you're not. Um, and she was on heavy meds by then as well. So eventually, even though we were mixing this drug and she was on it 24 hours a day with a pump that went directly into her right heart chamber, we realized it was time for a double lung transplant. So that was going to be the only thing that could buy her um, time. But as you may or may not know, lung transplants are possibly the apex of all surgeries. They are extremely difficult surgeries, much harder than any heart transplant or any brain work. It, it, it's a very complex surgery. And more importantly, what we then discovered was that our organ donation rate in South Africa is appalling and that the chances she was now emergency listed, but the chances of her actually getting her lungs were very, very slim. And that came as a big, big shock, a big shock. Um, so there was this day I was sitting at the dining room table. I was doing a whole lot of research actually on lung transplants. And Jane walked down the passage, breathless and on her oxygen. And she said, mum, I'm not going to get these lungs, am I? I said, well, I don't know. Maybe not. It's it's not looking good. And she said to me, well, what are we going to do? We need to do something. We need to take action. And if not for me, then for everybody else, we need to make South Africa aware of this problem. We need to make South Africa aware of the need for organ donation. Um, and that really was what sparked the campaign that we now know as Get Me to 21. So what, what that, mm. so thank you for sharing that, Gabby. Um, so before we talk about the campaign, let's mm. go for a break and hear from our sponsors. Dave, baby, you know, my best friend, Jennifer, she's kind of hot, eh? Dave, stop. It's a trap. You need an exit strategy. Consider all the angles. Admitting she's hot will lead to your demise. However, saying no means insulting best friend Jennifer. It also means you think your darling angel is a bad judge of character. Think, Dave. What would Elliot do? Well, I've never really noticed, uh, but remind me to look next time. Smooth move, Dave. Smooth move. For well-considered smooth moves, Elliot is amazing. Broadcasting worldwide, online, 24-7. Welcome back. You tuned to Healthcare Hour with Colin Quist. My guest today is Gabby Lowe. She is sharing her story, her story also about her daughter, Jenna, who was finally diagnosed with pulmonary arterial hypertension. And Gabby has said that it wasn't really treatable. It wasn't recognized. Um, it wasn't... It wasn't something that was that had a solution in South Africa and how the family have pulled together, how they work to see. And she's now saying that basically Jenna needed a lung transplant but said, Mom, I'm not going to be getting these lungs, am I? And that's where Gabby said, no, it doesn't look like. What are we going to do about it? Mm. So... Um, I actually reached out to an agency, an ad agency, one who I knew had been working with the Organ Donor Foundation. And Kirk came around for a meeting. And when he met Jen, he was just astounded by her. And he said, great, we, we need to do something. 
And really what the Get Me to 21 campaign was, was a, it's just a 45-second video of Jen in her bed, in her room, on her oxygen. Uh, by then, she could no longer leave home. And it's literally her saying, hi, I'm Jen. Um, I'm inviting you to my 21st birthday. And I don't care what age, size, color you are, you are invited. And all you have to do to come to my party is to sign up to be an organ donor. Um, because in order to get to 21, I'm going to need new lungs. And it's an, it was extraordinary. It, we had no idea what impact it would have. But it literally, and that was 10 years ago, it went viral. I think it's the first time we really saw something go viral in South Africa. And when I say viral, I mean, we had television ringing our doorbell two days later. It had 44 million Twitter impressions. It really went viral. And everybody was talking about organ donation. And she was interviewed on radio, interviewed on television. And she she genuinely didn't think she would get her lungs, but she wanted to impact organ donation in South Africa yes. because there are literally between four and 5,000 people every day awaiting a life-saving life transplant. Yes. And what happened was that in the first three months of the campaign, she single-handedly increased the organ donation rate by 287% yes. in three months. It was an extraordinary thing to witness. And what was more extraordinary was when I look back at it now, was how empowering it was for her. She was not a victim of her disease. She was, you know, it left her feeling like she could make a difference. Um, and that and she was, did make a difference. And massively, yes. and still does. And I mean, she lived life to the fullest. She like yeah. really took on the thing. And as you said, she didn't think she would get her own lungs, but she mm. was making sure somebody else gets organs. Yes. And she did make a difference. She really did. I mean, and still today, because what's happened, anyway, let me finish with the story first, and then I'll tell you what's happened. But she got her lungs on the 10th of December, 2014. We got a call to say we've got lungs. And it was just the most hectic day. It was it was both terrifying and really exciting at the same time. This was our chance. This was our chance for life for our child. And it was hectic getting to Joburg. It's a, in itself a story. We got there and then she went into an eight hour surgery. And, and then we as a family went into, oh, there's no other way to describe it other than six months of hell. And that's, yeah. I'm not being dramatic. It literally was six months of hell. You know, she was in ICU, in isolation, in and out of ICU, but constantly in isolation. For those six months, 187 days, everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. It was just, by the time she had her transplant, she was really ill and really, really thin and she was really ill. But the lungs were not, at the end of the day, the thing that was the problem. Um, her organs shut down, her kidneys failed, the hectic meds that you have to take with a transplant in order to not have rejection um, she had seizures, she had spinal taps, she had to drain those lungs many times. She, I can't begin to explain to you. She had an appendectomy two, two months after her transplant. It was just bizarre. Um, and eventually she had infections. Oh, yeah, it was, it was really, 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 really tough. Um, 
and Stu and I would pass the baton. I would be with her all day and I'd wait for the 7 p.m. handover with the nurses and then Stu would come and take over and he'd do the the whole evening until she eventually fell asleep. We had to move Christy up to Joburg, change schools, spend all this time at the hospital, um, and she wasn't well. And the worst part was um, her stomach was paralyzed from, I don't know if it's from the surgery or from the meds, but that meant unspeakable nausea. It meant very difficult to process food and to keep food down. She just got thinner and thinner. And she just never let go. She fought, you know. So, yeah, and eventually after six months, she got pancreatitis and we lost her. We lost her on the 8th of June, 2015, after six incredibly difficult months. Um, Yeah, after that, she died three months shy of her 21st birthday. On her actual 21st birthday, I launched the Genelo Trust as a not-for-profit organization in her honor. I was pretty broken, uh, completely broken at the time. So I didn't do much with it initially. Um, And it took many years to work through. Before I could even get to the grief, I had to work through the trauma. I had severe, severe PTSD from what I'd witnessed and gone through and been through with her in, in, in hospital. So first it was working through all the PTSD and trying to find a way to carry on living. And um, three months, so six months after she died, three months after her 21st birthday, um, my husband, Stuart, who I'm still married to, we've been married 33 years, sat me down and said, I really don't know how to tell you this, but I've got cancer. So Stuart has multiple myeloma bone marrow cancer and we are 10 years into his disease he had known for two years and kept it from us because he didn't want us to have to deal with that while trying to fight for Jenna's life but as you can imagine that news just six months after losing her just Christy my youngest daughter literally fell into the most the blackest hole the worst depression horrific depression and that went on for a good two years yeah, and there I was trying to hold it together, trying to be there for Stu, having to go through that again. He had a bone marrow transplant. I was still in severe PTSD, so even just walking into a hospital was difficult. Yeah. Um, but it did catapult me into fighting for life again in some strange way, which got me out of feeling like I was wanting to die myself you know not I'm not saying I was suicidal but I was so but just give up in yeah yeah, I was just in this anymore yeah in death I suppose like busy with that Mm. and then having to fight again in some ways I guess was a blessing in many ways not a blessing but in some ways it was um yeah I I think those first two years after her death were just really 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 tough Um, and then so how is Stu now? Not great, not great. We are back where we were, fighting to get meds into the country. 
he's been through just well, he's been through every med that's available in South Africa. So we are bringing meds into the country. So it's the same thing. Um, yeah, it's a battle. It's a battle. But he is he's well enough to work, and um, but he has chemo every single week, and he's been having chemo for eight years. Yeah, it's so Gabby. As you know, as coaches, we know that there are no words, but knowing that we are holding you. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, look, it. Um, what happened was actually seeing that you just said knowing that we are coaches. Is in that first year post Jen's death, I realized I can't go back to marketing. I had run a marketing consultancy for 18 years and it just felt like anathema to me. And I mm. wanted to do something with substance. Um, and that's when I went and studied, um, to become an integral coach. And I can genuinely say that was a lifeline for me, <laughs> actually. And down the line, it's become a lifeline for others, you know, because yes. I love my work and I, I do some deep work with a lot of people who are dealing with very difficult stuff. Um, but yeah, it was a lifeline for me to realize that I guess what I'm saying is that finding a way to, to make everyday matter, finding a yes. way to have purpose, um, really helped me on my journey of recovering from, from that unbelievable suffering that I had to witness Jane go through. And from losing our daughter, our beloved, beloved daughter, you know, it, uh, and then trying to hold my family together with Stu still fighting and Christy going into a terrible depression and fighting for Christy and I to find our way back to each other through all of this. Mm. Um, I'm so glad that I did the coaching because it gave me so many tools to use, not just for other people, but for myself, um, to find a way through. To find yeah. a way through. Yeah. And it is now eight years since we lost Jen. Um, and I don't think you know, people say to you, <laughs> I had someone say to me, are you over it yet? I, I, and I think it's the most extraordinary question. Really. Yeah. And, and such, yeah. there's such heartbreak in how people talk about grief. And mm. so let's ask you, um, yeah, how should people ask you? Because I think we understand like you you found a new career, you've made difference to other people. So there's there's moving forward, there's continuing, yes. there's carrying on, there's there's eight years later. Yes. But it it's obviously different. But how should people ask you, well, how are you today? Well, just like that, it's really good. How are you? How how is it going? And you know, how's the family coping? How are you doing? Those are all great questions. How are you today is a great question because it doesn't imply that you have to be. I think there's a need for people to see grieving people be better, just get better. And I yes. guess it's about, it's a, it's not about not wanting to support you. It's about your vulnerability makes me feel vulnerable. And so I want to shut it down. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what it's about. And I get that. I understand that. Um, and I think for me, what I've learned is that you don't get over the loss of a child. You mm. learn to live with it. You learn to live with it. And mm. I'm not saying you learn to live with it. I, I'm, I mean, literally live, you know, so yeah. I have found a way to live, to enjoy life, to find moments of joy every day, yes. 
to engage. What's really helped me is that two years after she passed, and you know, I said I'd started the General Trust, I really threw myself into it and I got back into the landscape. And we've completely changed the landscape of farming hypertension in South Africa. We have. There are now four or five treatments available. We have started a clinic at Kruteskir for other patients with primary hypertension when there was nowhere for anyone to go. Now we have a clinic. Um, we have nearly a thousand state patients at the clinic. And all of those things give me a sense of purpose. And I guess they help me to make some kind of sense out of an otherwise completely senseless death. That's just too hard to get your head around and your heart around. So, yeah, one finds ways, and I will probably have to do that again because, you know, there's a really good chance I'll lose my husband. So we have to learn to live with grief and to to move through bereavement. And I think that the biggest learning has been for me not to shut it down but to lean into it. To really allow yourself, to really allow yourself to feel the grief, to go there, to work with it, to, you know, yes, turning away from it makes it complicated and complex grief and it lasts much longer. That kind of hold on you, you get stuck. You don't want to get stuck. And so (laughs) leaning into those difficult, difficult feelings is is actually where the work lies. Yeah. I like the meme that explains grief as being, you know, often we think grief gets less with years and it's like a balloon that shrinks, Mm. but it says, no, the grief stays the same. Obviously changes in shape, changes in, but it's still, it doesn't get less, but life expands around it. Mm. Yes. That's a beautiful way to say it. And one of the, one of the ways I say how I've experienced it is that when those moments of grief come they are like tidal waves and it is it feels the same as the day that I lost her but the space between the tidal waves is much bigger yeah so whereas I used to have tidal waves all day every day then it became you know more space more space more space yes and that does happen especially if you do the work and when I say do the work what do I mean by that I mean allow yourself to grieve yeah. Go to therapy, do trauma release exercise, go to EMDR if you need to. I did months of EMDR to work with the trauma. Uh, talk about it. Have ritual. I have rituals that I do at home to remind me of Jane. I light candles when I'm missing her. I've got her beautiful paintings all over the, and portraits and pictures of her all over the house. She's not gone. She lives inside us. She is still my child. You know, the fact that she's living in another realm and is not physically alive doesn't mean she's not my daughter. She is still my daughter. Mm. Okay, so let's go for another break. Um, I know that our topic has been quite intense, and I'm sure that there are lots of tissues out there, but this is good. We need to talk about grief. So let's go for that break. And when we come back, we're going to look at Christy. Ask Christy. At Grant's. We believe all good things start with three. Because three isn't a crowd, it's company. Three, it always starts the party. It's triple the characters, the moves 
the memories. Grants, aged in three types of wood for a smooth taste. Triple wood, triple good. More music, more inspiration. Vuga online. Welcome back. You're listening to Half Care Hour with Colin Quist. My guest today is Gabby Lowe, who's been talking to us about her daughter, Jenna, who had uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension, the differences that have been made, the strides that we've moved forward. Gabby and I are both coaches, so we know it's about moving forward. Um, The fact that there is now a clinic available, there are different treatments available in South Africa, and so there are changes. Let's look at Christy. What Christy has gone through from an, from her cousin, from Natalie, passing away, also from her sister. Um, I think sometimes we can be focused just on one part of the story as opposed to saying, yes, you've shared your lived experience. Um, yes, where's Christy? How is she today? I'm so glad that you asked that because it does often happen that the focus will be on Jen and Christy has lived this every minute of the day. And for her, I think what people don't necessarily see and forget to hold in mind, you know, for her, this started at 13, which is the onset of puberty. And I think that that's quite hectic to have the onset of puberty and real trauma, lived trauma for an extended period of time happen at the same time. So um, she... She is doing well. Thank you for asking. She is now 26. She has turned into the most extraordinary young woman, um, which I am so grateful for. And it's easy to say, well, yes, of course she has. She's had all this life experience. She must be the most exceptional human being. But you know what? It could have gone the other way. She could have shut down. She could have turned to substances, quite frankly, with the amount of trauma that she was dealt and that she's lived with, um, witnessing Natalie's death, witnessing her sister's death and her and Jane were extremely close and witnessing the suffering that went with that. And then straight afterwards, her her father being diagnosed and, uh, you know, her dad is her everything. So it's been a struggle. Um, As I say, she had severe depression I think there was, with Christy, initially denial of grief. Because she was so young, it was difficult for her to jump into it the way I jumped into it. She did it a different way. And initially, there was denial of grief, depression, in that way, uh, in, yes. in terms of it. So actually, she's still doing some of the trauma work now. She's only really doing the trauma work now. She's, she's taken her longer. Um, but... She has worked through so much. She's no longer on depression medications. She has a few flat days in a month, but she's so much better. She's now singing full time. I mean, for five years after Jen died, she did not sing. And Christy's a singer and she started singing to help her sister. She's, her and Jen wrote a song, I Need More Time. And that song helped to raise funds and awareness of the disease. So she got catapulted into that as a career. And she has the most exceptional voice. But when Jen died, she literally stopped singing. She stopped singing for five years. In COVID, in lockdown, she moved in here with us. And it was, for us, the best thing that could have happened to this family. We had 
the deepest, darkest, the most difficult conversations. We worked through things that had not been said. We sat with it all. And we did so much healing in that time. Um, and I think that really helped to shift her into a much healthier space. She started singing again. She wrote a beautiful song called Take Me Away about the pain of grief mm. and loss. And she's been writing ever since. And she's now a full-time singer. So she finished her degree. And she's now a full-time singer. Um, she gigs. And she writes her own stuff. It's not an easy career to have chosen because you have to self-motivate all of the time. And, um, yeah, I think it's really, really tough, actually. And yet she's doing it. And she's in a very healthy long-term relationship with a lovely guy who we really adore. Um, and she's in a good space. However, yeah, it's tough, you know, with mm -hmm. Stu, Stu's illness. And, you know, I think that the truth is that we just... Sometimes it feels relentless. To be honest, it feels really relentless. And yet, what I was going to say is the truth is that we have found a way to, whew, to really live, um, to be present. I don't know how else to put it. To really be present with life. And, yeah. and I've discovered that both the brutal and the beautiful live side by side. You don't get the one without the other. Yeah. And so in some ways, I feel blessed because we live in a way that's very present. Um, which I, I hear Gabby almost a lifetime. That, yeah. Yes. For me, you know, in your story, I hear that you are all embracing life the way Jenna did. Yes. In that yes. it's mindfully present, living each day, not like ugh, we'll pitch for 5% of it, you know. Um, we, we all in. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> all in. And all sort of like saying, let's, let's see, let's embrace, let's actually, um, see the joy in the day. Yeah. You know, the juiciness. Absolutely. The, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what we do as a family. So people are always astounded when they come into our home how much joy there is in this house. Mm. There is, there's yeah. real connection. And real joy and real pain. And they all yeah. live side by side. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, it's also seeing as well that life isn't Disney. It's not just all the happy, smiley kind of story that they're ups and they're downs. And even mm -hmm. in the downs, you can find the happy. And in yeah. the ups, you can find the sad. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. And I really don't think you can have one without the other. So um, I'm sure you know her well, Dr. Brené Brown. I absolutely love her. And she talks about how you can't selectively numb emotion. Yes. If you numb the pain, you numb the joy. If you numb, yes. the, if you numb yeah. the dark, you numb the light. And it is absolutely true. That is my lived experience, that yes. if you numb the pain, you numb the joy. You can't do that. Um, so allow yourself to feel it all. And no one ever died of crying, you know, actually. Yes. But if you are shutting down emotion, it will have an impact on you. Yes. It will have an impact, a physical probably impact, but yes. also it'll show up in your life in uglier ways. So we really do need to allow ourselves to grieve. Yeah. Yeah. And to feel. So, Gabby, thank you so much for honoring us with your story. And for sharing 
all the different aspects of your story. Let's ask you, you know, in closing, your message for parents, your message for healthcare professionals. Okay. Um, I think that what's extraordinary is that there's a lot more disease around, or maybe we're just more aware of it, but you know, there's 7,000 rare diseases in the world, which makes you wonder why they call them rare. <laughs> 7,000 of them. So my family is not alone in our fight, in our struggle. People all over the world are facing rare disease, and it's complex. When, you, when you're staring down a rare disease, it's a complex thing. So my message and my learning has been that as a patient, empower yourself. Don't take no for an answer. Don't assume that doctors are God. They don't know everything. Live with hope. Find a way to hold on to hope every minute of the day. Hope regardless of the outcome, because you will prevail in the end, regardless of the outcome. And I think that the other thing is to, to really support each other and look, look it in the eye, stare it down so that you can really support each other and be there. A f- facing down a rare disease is a complex thing and you need to be all present yes. with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I and then also important uh, to be aware of the symptoms of pulmonary hypertension to seek, to seek out. Don't just accept when someone says, yeah. Oh, it's this or it's that. Remember, you know, you know, your child, you know, your own body. Mm. Um, and then also to sign up and register as an organ donor. Yes, please. So if you're not a donor, why not? And I always say to people, you know, I think we, we're scared of talking about organ donation because we think it's a topic about death. It's not. It's a topic about life. Yeah, yes. Because when you die, you don't need your organs. You don't need them in heaven, honestly, but we need them on earth. And yeah. I often say to people, because there is resistance and I still can't get my head around it, but I say to people, okay, so if you were dying or a loved one was dying and needed an organ in, or, in order to live, would you accept the organ? Mm. If the answer is yes, then you should be a donor. Yeah. You should. If the answer is yes, I would take an organ to save my life or the life of someone I love dearly, then you should be a donor. It's very simple. So you need to sign up and you need to talk to your family and let them know that you're a donor. Yes. Yeah, so very and then, important, mm. we just did save seven as well. And it's also saying... You know what? Have the conversation with your loved ones of, by the way, I don't need any of this. So anything that can stay behind and allow somebody else to live, mm. please make sure that it happens. Mm. Absolutely. Quite easy conversation. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is easy conversation, yeah. actually. We think of it as a difficult one. It's not. It's an easy conversation. Yes. And then and what you said be- about the symptoms of pulmonary hypertension is really important. So um, earlier diagnosis equals longer life. Very simple. So that is why I actually created the documentary, Get Me to 21. And if you haven't seen it, you can see it on Showmax anywhere in Africa. And it was to try and impact earlier diagnosis because way too often it is missed. So slightly blue-tinged lips, excessive fatigue, fainting, feeling breathless, panting, out of breath. If you have those symptoms, go and get checked. Very simply, you have to go and get checked. So one of the easiest ways to tell that's not invasive is putting an oximeter on your finger. And if your oxygen levels drop while you're walking, there's a chance, you know, so you need to go and get checked. So during COVID, when everybody was 
really experiencing that breathlessness from COVID, that's when it dawned on me. I was like, ah, I need to do a documentary because yes. for no- now people will relate to the symptoms. People of will understand. And they'll yes. understand what it feels like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why the documentary came about. And it really is to drive earlier diagnosis. Yes. Yeah. And awareness. So, so, Gabby, thank you so much for being strong, for coming to share your journey with us, coming to share your healing with us. And also sending much love to Stu. Thank you. Thank you. You see, he's already become Stu now because you call him Stu. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And so, yeah, we're all praying for him, sending him much love and healing. And um, yes. Thank you, Colleen. Thanks for having me. Yes. Okay. So thank you very much for tuning in, for listening to us, for downloading our podcasts. Uh, please reach out to us. Please know that you are loved, you matter, and you're not alone. You've been tuned to Half Hour with Colleen Quist. How do you know the life or personal coach you're about to work with is who they say they are? How do you know if they can do the job? At the Africa Board for Coaching, Consulting, and Coaching Psychology, we can tell you. So before you share your secrets and spend your money, check with us first. Visit www.abccp.com or call us on 012-751-7608. The ABCCP, the professional body for coaches. Right here, right now, the best tunes of all times.